Super Talk Mississippi media production. You're listening to Sports Talk Mississippi On Demand, presented by Pearl River Resort. Escape to Choctaw, Mississippi and enjoy world-class gaming, the Dancing Rabbit Golf Club, and Geyser Falls Water Park. Escape to Pearl River Resort. To the junction, in the grove, and to the top. This, this is Sports Talk Mississippi. On your radio and in the game. Right here on Super Talk Mississippi. Talk Mississippi with you Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a long time, you would expect me right there to say, uh, check them out online at mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. All of those things are true. But there's a new reason besides land financing or refinancing or getting the help you need with your money issues as it pertains to farming or building a house in the country or building a dream house. There's a new reason for you to go to the website. Borky, you listening up? I'm listening. If you go to the website, mslandbank.com, you have a chance to enter to win for a young person the hunt of a lifetime. All you got to do is click on the link on the website, enter the child's first and last name, and then you have to be a legal guardian of the child's name that you enter, put in your first and last name, your email address, and your phone number. You do that, you will be registered to win the hunt of a lifetime. Here's what's included. One Mississippi Lifetime Sportsman's License for a Mississippi resident youth between the ages of 5 and 16 years old as of January 1st of the current year. So if you've got a kid in your house that's between 5 and 16, a chance to win a lifetime Mississippi sportsman's license, never have to buy a license again, and you get to choose between a fully funded duck hunt at Beaver Dam Hunting Services in Tunica or a fully funded quail hunt at Prairie Wildlife in West Point. And hey, Dad, I think that means you can take Rippy for a hunt. 29th. (laughs) Oh, you've got now, uh, from now until October 29th, to enter to win. MSLandBank.com, enter to win the hunt of a lifetime. Were you suggesting that uh, Rippy was under 16? Yeah, I, uh, for a second there, said that this means hey, Dad could take Rippy for a hunt. Wait, did I miss it? Rippy, is Haydad your legal guardian? Not that I'm aware of. I haven't I haven't filed any papers or anything. I always wanted a son. Well, I'm not sure that either of you are eligible to win this anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Torn up. What's up, guys? Happy uh, Tuesday. Hey, Borky, still no baby? Yeah, still no baby. <laughs> It's coming. It's Man, coming. I'm fr- I thought the original date though. was this Friday. Uh, well, the original date was actually next week, uh, sometime. But then it got moved up to 
uh, an inducement on Friday, but then something happened on Thursday of last week where it was a sign of it being imminent to spare details, and just nothing has happened since then. There you go. Which they told you was altogether possible. Yeah, it, we were told it it could be hours from now or it could be a few days. It, we just we don't know, but uh, the beginning is here, and that was a lie. No, it wasn't. I a know, lie. They but told it feels you like hours or days, and days like, consist of hours. It just yeah, hasn't happened yet. I just got my hopes up, man. Uh, baseball is happening right now in the Bronx. Yankee Stadium, Yankees hosting the Houston Astros. And it is uh, game three of that series, 1-1. Ground out to start the ball game. Luis Severino on the mound for the New York Yankees. Then Jose Altuve comes to the plate and deposits wall. There's been one out recorded, and there has been one home run hit. 12th career postseason home run for Jose Altuve, Houston out to a one nothing lead. That was fast. Might even say, Rippy, uh, sub-optimal? At least if you're a Yankees fan. Yeah, I mean, probably not ending one nothing though. Garrett Cole going on the mound. I'll give you some numbers uh, about Garrett Cole coming up in a little while, uh, in a little bit. He has been remarkable. Hey Dad, what's up? Not much, guys. Pretty uh pretty standard Tuesday for me up here in Stark Vegas. What does that entail? Not a whole lot. I, I worked out this morning. Uh, I've done the podcast. We had a long, long edition of the rumblings. By the way, quick shout out to me and to my podcast partner, Joel Coleman, but more <laughs> importantly to our listeners. Uh, we were ranked in the top uh, one, two, we were ranked round number 122, not on episodes, but on total shows on Apple Podcasts. So, guys, wow. if you're listening, we really, really appreciate it. That was for the, uh, the Monday edition of Thunder and Lightning? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know how they rank them in terms of the shows because they have episodes and they have shows. Mm. We were in the shows ranking. There you go. So, and that is that just sports podcasts or across all just podcasts? Sports. Just sports. Just sports. Okay. We're not. We're not taking. Well, there are a lot of sports Times podcasts out there. So there are. That's a good thing. Absolutely. <sighs> Mine's not up there that high, Hayden. <laughs> You know what? It's a process, man. I'm probably in the top 120 in podcasts that are based in Mississippi. In in, where the host name rhymes with Gorky. Yeah, that would probably qualify, even though I'd have to check the stats to be sure. But I I will tell you, there is nobody, there are few people on planet Earth that are more qualified to tell you this. It's a process. The the (laughs) podcasting thing, it it takes some time to build. You can't can't just walk in from day one and be like, you've been at it. You've been at it for a while. I've been doing it, so. I'm just excited for mine to get interrupted by a screaming, crying baby while my wife's at work. That'll be great. It happens. Borky, you better be ready to host this show today. It feels like it's going to be one of those days with the phone line. I don't know. It rained like four drops a little while ago, and all of a sudden you got squirrels crawling in phone lines or something along those lines. Something like that. Are you at the Tad Smith Coliseum? Uh, No, I'm not. That's one of the all-time, I mean, of course we remember it because it was local, but that's one of the all-time great press conferences. Yeah. 
And then they give him a squirrel trophy. They gave him a, they gave him a mounted squirrel. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yes. And, and I'm sure that on some level, John Calipari uh, takes credit for the fact that Ole Miss now has an incredibly nice basketball arena. As well he should. I mean, the guy, when he does his live shots on ESPN, strategically places all of the uh, framed jerseys of the NBA players uh, he has behind him? Sitting yes. on the couch, chairs, wherever he can fit them? That guy? No. I tried to bounce back between baseball and Monday night football, bounce back and forth last night. Uh, the, the Two things. One, the baseball game was not very entertaining. Uh, Washington jumped out to an early lead. They continued to add to that lead, and game really was never all that close. So that was one reason not to watch a ton of the baseball. But d- did you guys watch some of it last night? I know you did, Rippy, right? Yeah, I did. Did it sound to you like the Vandy Whistler was there? Oh, dear God, no. I did not pick up on that. I was not listening that closely. I had the volume, Jane went to bed early, so I had the volume kind of low, just lying in the bed listening to it, and, you know, the announcers are not drowning it out, but there was this just, it wasn't constant like the Vandy whistler, but it was this high-pitched whistling just over and over and oh, and it lasted for innings, and... Normally, I'm able, like, watching a Vandy game, I'm kind of able to drown that out a lot of the time and just kind of move on. But I couldn't drown it out last night. Did you watch any of that, Borky? Honestly, no. I was all football last night. You know I didn't watch, though. Okay. Well, you guys have no idea. Anyway, the uh, the NFL game was fairly entertaining. Pretty big night for Matt Prater kicking the football. Had five field goals if... Detroit is able to get one touchdown and four field goals. They probably win. But, Borky, you're convinced the story last night was the officiating. It was, yeah. There was a phantom illegal hands-to-the-face call that gave the Packers a first down that led to the touchdown that brought them within two. And then there was another illegal hands-to-the-face call that was not illegal hands-to-the-face that let the Packers ice the game and then kick the game-winning field goal if that call would not have been made, as it shouldn't have, uh, Detroit would have gotten the ball with about a minute 30 or so left in the game. So two just pathetic calls that should not have been called led to the Packers' touchdown that brought them within two and the field goal that won them the game last night. So well, really ugly night for officials. You also had the... the um, you're probably thinking of the uh, helmet-to-helmet play that really wasn't. I mean, just an awful night across the board for uh, officials in that game. We'll get more into that here in a little bit. We'll talk baseball next. We've got some quotes from LeBron James, all kinds of stuff bounce around a little bit today. It's Sports Talk Mississippi on Super Talk Mississippi. Stick around. I have use Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online, supertalk.fm on this Tuesday afternoon. Astros leading it one nothing over the Yankees. Two outs in the top of the first inning. Big strikeout of uh, Alex Bregman, who's hitting three eighteen in the postseason coming into this ballgame. Borky, we were talking Monday Night Football a second ago, and obviously I was having some connection issues. So I, I don't know if you mentioned this or not. You were talking about a couple of hands-to-the-face calls that were, were made in the game that really affected the outcome. You also had the uh, the personal foul penalty where the defender for um, 
Detroit was going low, trying to come up with an interception, kind of trying to undercut a receiver, and you had some incidental contact with the helmets, and he got a personal foul, 15-yard penalty, and I think Green Bay went on in that drive to kick a field goal to get a little bit closer in the ballgame, but you had Booger McFarlane, who I know a lot of people don't like, but also the... um, the referee consultant or expert or whatever we're going to call uh, these guys that are now on, on most of these big broadcasts saying, I don't know how you call that one. And and Booger McFarlane simply asked the question, what, what's a defensive guy supposed to do there? Because he also has a right to go get the football. Yeah, and his answer, I mean, was pretty telling, wasn't it? He said, uh, just keep playing football because there's nothing else you can do. Either that or just let him catch the ball. But as a defender, there's nothing else you can do there. Yeah, and we already get a text. It was Lucas and Union that said the officiating didn't cost them the game. It was the two field goals from drives where they should have scored touchdowns. Yeah, sure, but no referee should have a direct impact on a score in a game. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah, the Lions could have done some other things. Like, after the first illegal hands to the face, they could have stopped the Packers from scoring there. They could have, but they didn't. They got scored on, and that's really why they lost the game. But still, those kind of things, having a direct impact on games, is it's not fun to watch right now. Because that really should have been a good football game last night. Stafford was cooking early. Rodgers came back and played really well. It was close at the end, but the story, yet again for like the fifth week so far this season is what was called by the officials and not what happened between the two teams on the field. It's a shame. And and by the way, yesterday for your Pearl River Resort pick of the day, Michael Borky gave you the Packers laying the three and a half at home last night. Brian Scott Rippey goes, nah, I don't know, kind of like Matt Stafford, kind of like this Detroit team. We ultimately went with Borky's pick and... How'd that work out? <laughs> yeah, see, what I should have said was money line. That's what I was really thinking, you know? And Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's what it was. Yeah, 23-22, the final. Green Bay gets the win, gets to 5-1 and one on the uh, season, and uh, Detroit takes the uh, the loss in the game last night. Um, glad to have you along this afternoon. The C Spire text number, 601-879-4395. Again, 601-879-4395. Nine five, you can jump on just like Lucas and Union did, and uh, join the conversation if you would like to this afternoon. So, as Michael told you before the break, we got a lot to get to this afternoon. There's a lot happening. We're going to keep you up to date with what's happening in the uh, the Yankees Astros game, uh, if for no other reason because I am interested in it. Um, but let's get into the baseball conversation and and let's go to last night. Nationals get the 8-1 win over the Cardinals and now lead three games to none in the series and have a chance to close it out tonight in four. Rippy, I know you like this Nationals team, and you have all season long. You pointed out the fact that they were 19-31. and I, I think I heard them say on the broadcast last night that it was the farthest below 500 that any team has ever been that has ultimately made it into the playoffs and advanced. There were 12 games below 500 at 19 and 31. Is it just the pitching that you like, or is it the entire makeup of this Nationals team? 
I mean, they hit pretty well too. But yeah, I mean, when every any time you have three front line starters like that in a day and age where the numbers tell you bullpen is more valuable, the Nationals are kind of bucking that trend. And I mean, I would take those three guys up against pretty much anyone, and at least two of them are probably going to pitch twice. Maybe not all. Maybe all three in a seven game series if it goes that far. Steven Strasburg last night, seven innings, seven hits, twelve strikeouts. He threw 117 pitches in the game. And I got to be honest, it's refreshing to watch baseball played where a starter gets six or seven innings. You're just not seeing that a lot. And it is 100% the strategy that the Nationals have gone with. And they talked about that last night in the broadcast, that the Nationals want to get six innings out of their starting pitching. I mean, there may be a lot of other teams that give lip service to the idea of wanting to see starting pitchers get that deep. But that's not really what anybody's looking for anymore. They're looking for five innings out of a starter. Yeah, I mean, some of it depends on who it is. Because, like, with the Astros, they'll gladly let Verlander or Cole go that far and gladly let them take him. I guess some of it depends on the quality of the pitcher or how the team's constructed. But, yeah, to have three guys like that is certainly not the norm. Flaherty was on the mound for the Cardinals and just was not at his best last night. Four innings, five hits, four earned runs. He struck out six in the game. The uh, Cards used five pitchers in the game. Uh, Ponce de Leon finished it off the, the last two innings. Uh, not a lot of bullpen action for the Nationals, and they didn't have to go to their guy. Uh, so Sean Doolittle, plenty rested. I'll be interested to see today with Corbin's going today for the Nationals. Is that right? Presumably, yes. That would make sense. Would Would they stretch Doolittle out a little bit more? Than they have been if they felt like they, you know, if they got a one run lead in the top of the seventh, top of the eighth, would they stretch them out a couple of innings? I guess possibly, but I, I, I don't know. I, the reason, there's a reason they're pitching these starters so much. They have statistically the worst bullpen in the history of a team to make the playoffs. So, I mean, that's certainly by design. So, I don't know. I mean, I guess he is their quote unquote guy, but I mean, that's a fairly low bar. Yeah. Um, hey, Dan, I know you're not terribly invested in these uh, these playoffs, but uh, here's a reason for you to watch tonight. You ready? I'm listening. Dakota Hudson on the mound for the Cardinals. Ah, there you go. Trying to trying to stave it, it is off. Is that enough to get you to? Is that enough to get you to turn the television on? I'll be honest with you. This whole national thing, the national thing, is getting me interested. I might give it a look just because. And I know Borky said he didn't think it was it was great, but I, I like the the. the the Ewing theory at play here of of Bryce Harper missing the World Series and the Nationals being better without him somehow. It, is the best part of this national story the fact that Steven Strasburg is getting another chance to get to the World Series? Because the Nationals were probably the best team in baseball. What what year was it? 2012. 2012. And they shut him down for the postseason. And they stuck with their plan. He's like, we want this guy with us long term. We're not going to risk ruining his arm in his first year in the big leagues or second year in the big leagues, whatever it was at the time. And it's taken a long time for them to get back to this point where they're just a win away from getting to the World Series. Yeah, I would say it's more so just the entire the entire franchise's postseason futility, more so than anything else. But sure, I mean, there's something to be said for that because. I don't know. I don't think at the time, I think the reason they were shutting him down is because, one, they were worried about his arm, and, two, they figured there'd be a lot more trips to the CS than there probably has been to this point. Yeah. 
What was that, hey, Dad, about the Giants? Oh, they were the best team in 2012 since they won the World Series. That's just my opinion. Well, it, no, I, I don't disagree with you, and that was a really good Giants team, and it was that even-number year thing where they were doing it on a pretty regular basis. Those were the days. But even you can admit that the Nationals would have been a different team if Strasburg had been in the rotation. Probably so. You never know, unfortunately. Or fortunately, Probably depending on who you are. So. Yeah. I, you, you might just uh, hold on to that fortunately thing. Severino worked out of a bases-loaded jam. Houston missed opportunity in the uh, top of the first inning. They get a solo home run from Jose Altuve, but leave the bases loaded. And uh, now the Yankees are coming to bat in the bottom of the first inning. And they've got to deal with a guy who has been really, really good. Garrett Cole. Let me throw some numbers at you for uh, Garrett Cole. 25 strikeouts in his last two starts. That's tied with 1997 Mike Mussina for the second most in a two-start span in a single postseason. The only one who's done it more, Bob Gibson in 1968. He struck out 27 over the span of two starts. Garrett Cole has recorded at least 10 strikeouts in each of his first two starts of the postseason, obviously. The only pitchers with three straight 10-strikeout postseason games are Justin Verlander in 2013, Cliff Lee in 2010, and there's that name again, Bob Gibson, in 1967. And then how about this? Last note on Cole uh, Garrett Cole. He has won 18 consecutive decisions. That is tied with 2004-2005 Johan Santana, for the third longest streak since 1920, which is what we define as the live ball era. 18 consecutive winning decisions for Garrett Cole, including two in the playoffs this year. Sports Talk Mississippi. Some baseball nuggets for you there. We've got a whole lot more coming up in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Streaming online at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along on this Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and Brian Scott Rippey. Earlier today, the SEC released its predicted order of finish and preseason all-SEC teams for basketball. You guys ready to talk some basketball? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. When you look at the first-team all-SEC... Unless you're a hoops junkie, there are mm, at least two names that you've never heard of before on the first team. Let's do order of finish first. We'll go 14th to 1. 14 to 1. Pick to finish dead last the team that did not win a game in the SEC a year ago, the Vanderbilt Commodores under first-year head coach Jerry Stackhouse. Trying to snap 20-game losing streak. That is correct. 13th in the SEC. The team that is coached by Kwanzaa Martin. Right, hey, Dad? Correct. Konzo Martin's Missouri Tigers. 12th. The Texas A&M Aggies. First-year head coach Buzz Williams rolling into College Station. 11th, 
the Arkansas Razorbacks, also with a new head coach. Tenth in the SEC, Frank Martin's South Carolina Gamecocks. All right, so that's the bottom five. Vandy, Mizzou, A&M, Arkansas, South Carolina. Number nine, despite having first-team All-SEC player Anthony Edwards, highly sought-after recruit, Tom Crean in his second year has Georgia picked at preseason number nine. Number eight, despite having a first-team All-SEC guard in Brian Tyree, Kermit Davis's Ole Miss team picked number eight. Despite having a first-team All-SEC player in Reggie Perry, Ben Howland's Mississippi State Club picked to finish seventh. Alabama, under first-year head coach Nate Oates, preseason number six. They've got a second-team All-SEC selection in Kyra Lewis, Jr. Tennessee at number five, despite losing Admiral Schofield and... Why can I not think of his name? I can see him. I just Grant Williams. Grant Williams. Yeah. Yes, despite losing those two guys... They're picked to finish fifth in the SEC. Number four, the Auburn Tigers. Number three, Will Wade's LSU Tigers. Florida, number two, and Kentucky, shockingly, preseason number one. There was some talk about Florida being preseason number one, though, wasn't there? That they had a chance Agreed. to knock yes. together? Yes. Uh, Quickly, let me give you the first and second team All-SEC, the preseason player of the year, then we'll talk about that order of finish. So first team All-SEC, five guys. Kerry Blackshear from Florida, freshman. Anthony Edwards from Georgia, freshman. Ashton Hagens from Kentucky, sophomore. Reggie Perry, Mississippi State, sophomore. Brian Tyree, Ole Miss, senior. Second team All-SEC, Kyra Lewis Jr. from Alabama, Isaiah Joe from Arkansas, sophomore Andrew Nimhard from Florida, Tyrese Maxey, freshman at Kentucky, E.J. Montgomery, sophomore at Kentucky, Skyler Mays at LSU. Is he a senior? I think Skyler Mays is a senior. And Lamonte Turner at Tennessee, preseason SEC player of the year, Kerry Blackshear from Florida. All right, so predicted order of finish. Let's start bottom four. Vandy, Mizzou, Texas A&M, Arkansas. Do you agree with those four teams at the bottom? Yeah, some, some. I mean, I don't know if that's going to be the – probably Vanderbilt on the bottom because with Stackhouse, I mean, he's such a wild card. What do you know about him as a coach? The other four, the other three teams, yeah, probably some order of that finish, yes. That do anything for you, Rippy? Arkansas, A&M, Missouri, Vandy at the bottom. Yeah, it makes sense. I don't have a problem with that. South Carolina, Georgia, Ole Miss, Mississippi State. Next four. That's a pretty big jump for Georgia. Georgia was not very good a year ago, and it felt like they had some internal issues with Tom Crean throwing that team under the bus. We remember that happening, kind of halfway, maybe three quarters of the way through SEC play a year ago where he basically said, look, I just got to coach what's here. 
this is what I inherited. I signed up for it. Um, well, that, that's South what Carolina at ten. Go ahead. That's what that's what happens though when you sign the nation's number one overall player and two and what three four. So they got four other four star kids as well. So I mean, they got a, they got an influx of talent. They got what four four top one hundred players coming in. That's pretty impressive. This is the first time in how long that on Tuesday or Wednesday night when you tune into the SEC, there's an NBA player on the floor in every game. Good question. That's, that's a little oh, hyperbole. That I imagine there's a couple of teams that don't, but by and large, this league has NBA players all over it. Kentucky's got multiple. Florida's got multiple. LSU has multiple. Auburn, probably at least one. Tennessee, at least one. Alabama, at least one. Mississippi State, at least one. Ole Miss, at least one, maybe two. Georgia, probably two. South Carolina, I'd say one. Arkansas, I'm not sure about A&M, Missouri, and Vanderbilt. So you've got at least 10 teams in the SEC right now. When you tune them in to watch their basketball game, they've got a legit NBA player on that team. When is the last time you could say that? I I don't know. Maybe never. I would say that it's been a while. Yeah. Ole Miss at number eight. Too high, too low, Rippy. That's exactly where I figured they'd be. I think I said on Monday's show or podcast, I mean, would be eighth or ninth. So, do you think that's? I mean, is that was that predicting where they would finish or predicting where the media would put them? Where the media would put them, but I mean, it's still about right. It gives them a room to. I mean, they finished higher than predicted seven of the last eight years, and if they were fifth, sixth, seventh, would that shock me? No, not at all. They should be pretty good. I guess if they were much past eighth or ninth, I would be pretty surprised. Yeah. Uh, hey, Dad, Mississippi State at number seven. Too high, too low, or about right? Probably about right. They finished, I think, sixth a season ago. Um, being seventh in the conference pretty much has you comfortably in the NCAA tournament. Uh, the only team in the top seven that didn't make it last year was South Carolina, and we all know about the, the non-conference struggles they had. I think State's going to be you know, in the, the mix to be a tournament team. So anything, like I'm sort of with Rippy here. If, if, if State been seven, eight, nine, I don't think it's, there's a whole lot of uh, – Room to complain. I don't understand Alabama at six. That's the one I don't get. That might it's be the only one, surprise. Yeah. It seems high. What's Why? the justification for them being there? Or can you think of it? I don't know. Nate Oates, he recruited okay, but like. That's what I'm saying. It seems high, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, they sucked last year. Yeah. I would I would bump Mississippi State and Ole Miss up a spot. I probably would flip Mississippi State and Ole Miss. Might have Ole Miss six. Mississippi State seven, and then Alabama, Georgia, South Carolina, kind of pull them out of a hat there. Here, here's what I want to know and what I want to see. I believe that Kentucky will be there around the top of the conference. I would pick Florida to win it this year. I really like the roster that they've got. I think LSU is going to be really talented once again. I feel like Auburn and Tennessee are at four and five because of what they did a year ago, not necessarily because of what they've got coming back. I mean, Auburn is now without Jordan uh, uh, Bryce Brown. They're without Jared Harper. They're without Chuma Okiki. 
and they are without uh, Horace Spencer. I mean, that was four important pieces to that Auburn team that made the run to the Final Four a year ago. I know Bruce has recruited well, but number four seems like it might be a little high for that Auburn team. And then Tennessee is going to look a little different this year. I certainly believe in Rick Barnes as a coach, but when you take arguably the best player in the SEC in Grant Williams and a dynamic player in Schofield off that roster, is that going to put them top five in this year's SEC? I don't know. These things are never right, though. You're right. I, no, I agree with that. Um, yeah. I don't see Vanderbilt finishing in the top half after being predicted last like Ole Miss did last year, but I guess crazier stuff's happened. Yeah. Sports Talk Mississippi with uh, with you. We are glad to have you along this afternoon. Tennessee lost another one of those big guys from uh, a year ago. We're back after this in the Renaissance Bank Studio. All right, Borky, help me make this story make sense. I've read the story from Sports Illustrated. I've read the tweets from Shams and from other people. And I'm still not exactly sure what's going on with Oregon center in Folly Dante, who is not going to be eligible for the first nine games of the season because the NCAA missed a deadline at the clearinghouse. Apparently that is what happened, as I understand it, which may not be perfect, but there is, there's deadlines to where you can clear a player to be eligible to play, and the NCAA did not clear him in time when all of his side of it was in order. They just didn't get their stuff ready in time. So he has to enroll in December and cannot play until after that, which is nine games into the season. There's got to be more to the story, right? I've looked for it. I can't find it. This is all we have to go by for now. I haven't seen any NCAA thing refuting it, and Shams is pretty solid. So if this is what he's reporting, this is what's going on. So this story comes from Sports Illustrated. Well, the the original story came from uh, – is Shams still with Yahoo? He's with the athletic, athletic now. He's with and, the athletic and now. stadium and as watch well. stadium. Okay, so he tweeted this: Oregon projected NBA lottery pick in Folly Dante has been informed he will be ineligible to start the season because the NCAA missed his clearance date. Dante, a six eleven big man out of Molly, says he will now re-enroll at Oregon on December fourteenth. So this was one of those uh, like notes, tweets, like he did a note in his iPhone and then tweeted it. He said, I left my home four years ago with a dream and three goals. Graduate from high school, attend a university, and play college basketball. None of that has changed. On December 14, 2019, I plan to enroll and play college basketball with the University of Oregon. I have completed my academic requirements and am currently waiting for the NCAA eligibility process to finalize. We're hopeful this will conclude soon and have asked the NCAA to keep my goal of a December 14, 2019 enrollment date in mind. He went on to say every prospective student-athlete that purchases an NCAA eligibility center ID 
regardless of their gender or origin, should be entitled to a timely and transparent process that's in line with the student's targeted enrollment date. So his original target enrollment date has changed because apparently, at least based on what we know so far, the NCAA dragged their feet on the clearinghouse process? That's how this reads. That means he is missing some pretty significant games early for Oregon as well. A game against Houston, a game against Memphis, all three games that Oregon will play in the battle for Atlantis, which has a incredible field this year. Oregon and North Carolina and Michigan, Seton Hall, Alabama. Southern Miss is playing in battle for Atlantis this year. I mean, it's an incredible field for that tournament. And that maybe makes a little shot at Oregon early. So it's not surprising. I mean, if this is actually an NCAA issue where they didn't get it done in time, that's um, it's not great. Standard operating procedure. It's one of How the least surprising stories we'll ever have. Because they no, don't care. I, I agree with you, but they just don't care. I don't think they do. Don't think. <laughs> That's a hundred percent. You'd be harder pressed to find evidence that they do. How is it possible, though? I mean, I, I know this is one of those moments where you guys say, Richard, have you been paying attention? And obviously I talk poorly about the NCAA on a fairly regular basis. But how is it possible that an organization whose goal is to make sure there's a level playing field for everybody and who purportedly cares about student-athlete welfare just misses a deadline to get a kid eligible if he's done all that he was supposed to do? Hopefully they were focused on hammering Kansas. Yeah, maybe. Maybe they just took Columbus Day off yesterday and couldn't be convinced to work on a Saturday or a Sunday. I didn't know people got off for that. I don't think I've ever had a Columbus Day off. Banks. Financial institutions. We're a financial institution. Sort of. Who? I don't know. We make money, Our right? Media company. Yeah, but there's, mo- you know, we make money. Rippy, your dad didn't work yesterday, did he? I didn't ask him, but I don't think so. Oh, yeah, no, definitely. He always has Columbus Day off. Pretty yeah. sure. Does he always laugh at your mom when she has to go to work on Columbus Day and he's off? I don't know. Sports Talk Mississippi with you in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Sports Talk Mississippi streaming online at supertalk.fm. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, Brian Scott Rippey. Tuesday afternoon, ALCS Game 3 going on right now in the Bronx. Astros up 2-zip. couple of solo home runs. Altuve had one in the first. Reddick had one in the second. Yankees have got a two-out base runner after a uh, full-count walk to Aaron Hicks in the nine-hole. Keep you up to date with what's going on with that game. Later tonight, 7.05, first pitch on TBS, St. Louis and Washington Cardinals. 
trying to become the second team ever, ever, to come back from a uh, three-games-to-none deficit in a league championship series to advance to the World Series. Feels like the deck's kind of stacked against them in this scenario, doesn't it, Rippy? Yeah, it's over. Yeah. But, I mean, you thought so with Boston against the Yankees that one time also, right? I don't know. Did you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It felt like it was over. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank online, mslandbank.com, Mississippi Land Bank, where they know the lay of the land. If you've got land financing or refinancing needs of any kind, Mississippi Land Bank can help. They've been financing land for over 100 years. So whether you are a farmer or if perhaps you... um, uh, you're looking to build a dream house in the country, buy a piece of recreational po- property, and you're in North Mississippi, give them a call, Mississippi Land Bank. You can find their phone number and also their branch locations online at mslandbank.com. I will certainly defer to you guys, at, at least to some level, on this NBA, China, Hong Kong story that seems to really not be losing any steam. Um, it all started when Daryl Morey, the general manager of the uh, Houston Rockets, tweeted his support. What for humans? Human rights. It was a. It was a graphic. Uh, It was basically just. It was a graphic that had what looked like a raised fist and stand with Hong Kong. That was it. It was just that one image and nothing more. And that set off a firestorm in which Adam Silver, the commissioner, the commissioner of the Board of Governors, or something like that. Something like that. Uh, commissioner of the NBA, had to start trying to backtrack that tweet, but it brought to the forefront the fact that China is a communist country, human rights are not a big deal, why are we defending... Well, it's an extradition issue. A guy from Taiwan, like, murdered his, I think, girlfriend and then, like, you know, fled to Hong Kong and they don't have extradition or whatever. So it's, like, related to that because a lot of people have fled, like, mainland China for Hong Kong. Yeah. And so, like, they want, like, now they want full-on democracy because they don't really trust the Chinese government. Hong Kong goes? Yeah. So basically, I just say that because Morty tapped into an issue with, like, tens of layers. It had lots of layers to it. Yeah. Um, China's mad. The NBA's mad because they've got a billion and a half dollars that is in jeopardy through their relationship with China. And apparently we poured some gasoline on the fire last night when LeBron James said this. We all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech. But at times there are ramifications for the negative that can happen. Um, when you're not thinking about others, and only you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe um, I don't want to get into a, a word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl, um, with Daryl uh, Morey. But I believe he wasn't educated on on, on the situation at hand, and um, and he spoke, and uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, uh, not only financially but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we what we tweet and we say and what we do. Even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be um, a lot of negative that comes with that too. 
Oh, I'll translate. This has been a huge pain in my you-know-what. Daryl Morey should have thought about that before he tweeted support for democracy. Would it have been okay if LeBron last night had just said, we've all got freedom of speech, but we don't have freedom from consequences for what we say? Period. See, I still think no. that would have been bad because the the consequences of supporting democracy should not matter, should they? I mean, you've got internment camps in China. I don't want to get down the political road, but the the human rights issues that are going on there extend multiple layers, and any defense of that country is indefensible, especially if you're an American citizen. And so, I mean, the best course of action, if you really didn't want to say anything, would have been no comment last night. People would have called him a sellout, but it's better than calling somebody who is supporting people that want freedom from oppression ill-informed. And, and then, he's already uh, well, he's already backtracked well, that's as well, too. So he's, he's already, oh, he's yeah, already said, he said that, uh, Rippy, Rippy, correct me if I'm wrong, he said that when he said he was uh, not educated on it, what he meant I, was he wasn't educated on the ramifications of what he was going to say. Yeah, I... So I've got the tweet in front of me, but he basically said, and this is LeBron's go-to every time he, like, like this is his political card, is to cite uneducation despite him only having a high school diploma and suing someone over the rights to a barbershop show, thinking it was an original idea. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there's any consideration for the consequences or ramifications of the tweet. Not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that, you know, what, a year-ish after he said, I mean too much to society to just shut up and dribble. I'm going to continue to talk about issues. So now others can talk about that. Then his second tweet was, my league and this team just went through a difficult week. I can imagine how difficult it was to play basketball in China. Anyway, I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others. And I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. So basically wait until I'm out of China so I don't have to deal with this. Thanks, yeah, and then in his statement, he, he said that Maury was only thinking about himself and not others when he was supporting people that don't have any effect on him whatsoever, seeking freedom and democracy. Like It's the ultimate circle of nonsense in a backwards way to say, I wish you wouldn't have messed with my money. And on one hand, I get that. I understand capitalism doing shady business with China because there's a billion people there and they love basketball and they buy my Nikes. I get that. But to call somebody misinformed and, and do this whole runaround in charade when you were wearing shoes that had equality on them last season is hypocritical. And as a guy that's the face of the NBA, to just bend the knee and defend anybody opposed to that in that way is just disgusting is what it is it's almost like they're just woke to make money they don't actually care about any of these that's issues. exactly what it is but yeah no kidding everybody's got a price a tag there aren't you but yeah. and the nba's appears to be nine figures i don't think the nba should be doing business with Ten china figures. i think that's their first mistake but see, it's not. You mean, you mean in an official capacity? Yes. 
Yeah, where they're dealing with the Chinese government, where Adam Silver's apologizing to the Chinese government. That's where the problem is, because in China, they don't have freedom. They don't have Twitter. They don't have YouTube. So anything that is aired or used in China is via the government. So when they schedule games to be aired on television in China, that is doing a direct deal with the Chinese government. And that is where you cross these shady boundaries where instead of being a league that speaks for what's right and equality and social issues, and then you work with the Chinese government that keeps people with different religious beliefs and internment camps and har harvest their organs while they're still alive. Like, that's what you're doing. And then you want to tell us that the problems are here in the United States when you're willing to accept those people's money and deal with them directly. Lucas and Union, LeBron should take his own advice and just shut up and dribble. Well, that was Laura Ingraham's advice, but sure. Come on, guys. The season is short enough. Let's talk Ole Miss Mississippi State football. Uh, he was behind Kaepernick free speech when he was kneeling, but when it's about to get into his pocketbook, that's different. Richard M. Wiggins says selfishness. So ironic he talks about someone saying something and being selfish when he sides with China for his own monetary selfishness. Uh, classic Kaepernick mentality. Tim in Columbia says, Amen, Borky. Quinn says, The joke that is woke. Trent and Saltillo bend the knee. Game of Thrones reference? Well played. Uh, also, Tim and McGee, you're exactly right, Michael. LeBron can stay in China. All right. Sports Talk Mississippi with you. Streaming online at supertalk.fm. Ceasefire text line is open, 601-879-4395. 2 nothing. Astros leading over the Yankees, headed to the bottom of the third. We're back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio. Back with you on Sports Talk Mississippi Tuesday afternoon. Said you wanted some Mississippi State talk, some Ole Miss talk. Do that. We're not going to do that three hours a day, five days a week, because there's other stuff going on and but absolutely, we're never going to stray too far from that. Hey, Dad, one thing we didn't get to yesterday, it's kind of been talking about all of the the Joe Moorhead stuff, his kind of opening monologue at his press conference yesterday, the disappointment from the loss in Knoxville over the weekend, was some former player reaction. Um, who were the guys that, that tweeted stuff and kind of what was the content of those tweets? I know Jonathan Banks was one, what Ben Beckwith was one, uh, Braxton Hoyette, I think. Anybody else? I saw Anthony Dixon had one out there too. Okay. And uh, as far as the context so, goes, I mean, they're unhappy. Um, you know, they feel like the, the program that they built, the culture that they built has, has gone away in, in very short amount of time. Um, and they don't, they just don't like the direction that the program seems to be headed in. And to me, the most damning of those is, is Braxton Hoyette, who actually played last season for Moorhead. To have him out publicly criticizing him, I thought that that spoke a, a, a loud a loud amount. Does that actually though? Like I, I'm not disagreeing with you, but like it almost in some ways means more from guys that don't know Moorhead very well and don't play with him at all. Like, how big of a role did Hoyette play on the team last year? He was a starter. Like, is there any? Up. I guess I'm not. I'm, 
I don't want to start, but like I guess it, to me it would seem more possible that there's something more personal there with that criticism than someone who has really no dog in the fight with regards to knowing Morehead or not knowing him. I see where you're coming from on that, but how rare? It's not very often you see a former player just openly criticize uh, his head coach. I mean, his text was or his tweet was, "It's time for a change." It wasn't, guys, what's going on? You know, this isn't acceptable. Blah blah. blah. It was, it's time for a change. So I mean, that that mm-hmm. you know, he's coming right at Moorhead on that one. Is that more damning, hey, Dad, than fans being upset? Oh, I would think so. I, I would think if you wanted me to like sort of rank them, the rank-and-file fan being upset is probably one of the least important things, to be totally honest. The former players have a, a larger voice, and then, of course, you're going to have your big money boosters, and they, they would have the largest voice uh, of anybody. But former players, especially, you know, Beloved ones like Anthony Dixon and Jonathan Banks, you know, making those kind of comments. That's that's not a good look for Mississippi State. You know, if, if you're Joe Moorhead, you're just sort of maybe dreading, is Dak Prescott ever going to say anything? No, I don't think he would. Dak Prescott's Twitter feed is the most corporate thing you've ever seen in your life. But, you know, th- those those are not voices you want to hear go, coming up against you. I think it's also part of the reason yesterday, if you go back and listen to the press conference, he talked about how much support he's gotten from a lot of different people. I think. I think that was brought up in, in re- reply to seeing the former players and what they're saying. It's like the, like, not it's the same situation at all, but like the Glenn Boyce hire was like such a disaster. So many outcries. Glenn Boyce made sure to cite that he had hundreds of people texting him during the conference call. Or like right. on the conference call, he texted, he had hundreds of people supporting him through mm-hmm. text messages. Yeah. Is there any indication? on internal level of support, which, I mean, I guess that means John Cohen. Uh, I mean, Cohen hasn't issued the always uh, fabulous vote of confidence or anything like that, but, I mean, I can't imagine John Cohen is sitting at his desk today, you know, looking over potential replacements for Joe Moorhead. Uh, I don't think he's just going to give his hand-picked guy uh, two years, especially when we're only six games into the season. Yeah. Why do people do that? Do what? The vote of confidence. Why do you do that? Oh, well, well, for the same reason people do all sorts of things. I mean, they're, just, they're dumb. They, they, they're dumb, and they feel like, it, they feel like it's doing something when in, in reality it does the exact opposite. If you truly believe in somebody, you don't need to say anything. You, know? you just let them go about doing their job. Yeah. It was, I think what you said there is important. I mean, handpicked... Replacement for Dan Mullen. Mm-hmm. So this was Cohen's guy. And the sample size is still small. Now, you can absolutely look at the trends and go, yeah, I don't like where this thing's headed. But just because of where it's headed six games into year two, after they won eight games and went to a bowl game a year ago, was it a disappointment? Sure. Should it have been more? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But they did win eight and got to a bowl game. I mean that that's a fact. And to be sitting at five hundred in year two with half the season to play, regardless mm-hmm. of how you project, it wouldn't make any sense for John Cohen to come out and say something. And if you're I don't you think. Know, if you're an MSU fan who who thinks Moorhead should go, what you're what you're you're what you're hoping is that coaches have the same view of the program 
and they, they look at the same things that you do. But I would think that most coaches are going to say, wow, Mississippi State was in a New Year's Day Bowl last year, and they're going to fire their coach after a second season. I'm not going there. Now, a lot of coaches will go because the money would be a raise, but are the coaches you want going to be those guys? That, that's that's the tough question. And All right. You know, I, so, I don't know. so, hey, Dad, we debated this a little yesterday, and, and I think Borky thought that I was disagreeing because of what I said. I I was only disagreeing with the part of the idea that, well, you can't go hire somebody else or you're not going to be able to go hire somebody good because you just got rid of a guy two years in. I just don't believe that to be true. The money is so big. It's the best conference right. in America. Right. and Some good coach would take the job. There's no question about and, that. And this sounds Some like a slight. I, I, yeah, I, I don't mean for this to sound like a slight. But they went through a search two years ago with no restrictions. Mm-hmm. And they went and hired an offensive coordinator. Well, man, they, same thing. You could do you know, that all over again. Same thing uh, a decade ago. I mean, they went out and hired. You know, the, who were the top two quarter, two top two uh, candidates in two thousand nine? Dan Mullen and Kevin Wilson. You know, there's not. There's no. The odds of MSU getting a proven Power Five head coach are astronomical. That seems unlikely. Could they go out and get a good group of five head coach? A guy like you know Bill Clark. Uh, Billy Napier, um, you know, somebody like that. Yeah, probably so. They probably could go out and get that guy, and and it, it, might, it would probably be an upgrade. But there's th- the, the idea that somebody who's been proven as a winner in the Power Five rankings would come to Mississippi State. It, it, it seems like a very very long shot. Yeah. And, and I said yesterday, and and I think I think you agree with this also. The most likely scenario, like overwhelmingly the most likely scenario, is Joe Moorhead's the coach of Mississippi State in 2020, just like he was in 2018 and 2019. I would imagine it's better than 90% right now. Probably even better than 95%. And I, I, I don't know, I mean, short of... Losing the last six games of the year, which is not going to happen, to finish three and nine. What's Abilene Christie's quarterback situation like? <laughs> I think the I think they the, play the, two the, guys. The, the scenario, yeah, who isn't these days? That's the new Plan One guy. Uh, the scenario, the only scenario for me that it, that could it seems realistic is if Moorhead were to only beat Abilene Christian on the way out, and then to lose embarrassingly to the, to Ole Miss in the Egg Bowl. There might be enough pressure to move on. Devil's advocate here. Um, you both said that they could go out and make another hire similar to the one they just did, even though it may not work out. But there's still a Power Five coordinator or a Billy Napier out there that would take the job, and presumably they would be able to produce just as well. So why would you waste a third year with negative direction? When you can go hire somebody like that, I don't believe they the should question. do it either. But, but but why not? If they can go get Billy Napier or Bill Clark, why are you wasting time? Why don't you just go do it? That that's that's the, the big question, obviously. And you know, I, the the quote I used, you know, I think Jeremy Foley said it, and I, I found it from Henry Kissinger that what has to be done and eventually has to be done immediately. So if you feel like for sure, okay, this is not only trending downward, but it's it's going to get worse. In year three, then you're you're almost obligated to make that move. So, 
But at the same time, you have to let the last six games of the year play out. He's not getting fired tomorrow. He's coaching against LSU. So let that happen and then see where you are at the end of it. That has that has to be that is the absolute best case scenario, worst case scenario, however you want to look at it. That's how that's going to play out. Also, what would you have to have been paid to say at the halfway point both Ole Miss and State are playing two quarterbacks this year at one time? I thought it might happen a little, but I thought it would be Keaton Thompson. At Ole Miss, I would never have thought it. Weird year. Yeah. Like, I know people like to throw Can't dollars around. I, I know people like to throw dollars around because the budgets are so big. But I don't... From conversations that I've had with people way up the ladder at Mississippi State, I don't think there's anybody who is interested or open to the idea of dropping seven, eight, nine million dollars on a buyout. Yeah, I just don't think that's in play at all. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. It has not been easy for Luis Severino. He has thrown a bunch of pitches through four innings. Gets out a little out of a little bit of a jam, strikes out George Springer to end the top of the fourth. Still two nothing, Astros leading it over the Yankees. Game three of the ALCS. Time for us to go today for the first time to the Farm Bureau phone line. Check out favorites.com and go with the home team. That's Mississippi Farm Bureau on Twitter. You can follow this guy at Brody A Miller. Writes the Athletic, covers LSU. Brody, what's up, man? Not too much, man. How are you doing? I'm good. I appreciate a little bit of your time. So this LSU football team might be good in 2019, right? <laughs> yeah, it seems like they are uh, pretty darn good. I mean, it's it's just fascinating how, you know, I mean, for, for, for years we've always known that LSU football has, has talent at the skill positions, right? I mean, they've had Jarvis Landry and Odell Beckham and Dwayne Bowe and Michael Clayton and all these talented receivers and, you know, plenty of running back, obviously, your Leonard Fournette and Darius Geises, but... It's just funny how it took this long to, to find an offense that actually knows how to kind of unlock all this talent and put in position to succeed. And listen, I, when they hired Joe Brady, I thought, you know, I thought this offense could, you know, I thought he was going to probably have some success here after talking to some people, but I don't think even his closest allies could have possibly expected this offense. Ed Ojean didn't probably, the, that they could turn around this fast and be right now the number one scoring offense in college football. I mean, if you put this kind of offense with LSU's talent on defense, even though it's been underwhelming, I mean, yeah, it's officially a genuine title contender. Oh, there's so many things you said there that I want to unpack. Um, let, let's start with the last and then kind of work our way back. So the defense has been a little underwhelming at times. People love to point to the fact that they gave up 30 to Vanderbilt, um, You know that Florida puts 28 on the board, et cetera. But when they needed it most on Saturday, I think it was, what, four consecutive possessions where they were able to keep Florida off the board at the at the end of that game. Is that going to ultimately be the identity of this defense, that when the chips are down, they are able to go out and make plays? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because I think there are so many kind of moving pieces of, like, you know, you know for example, there's certain games where maybe they're, they're playing some zone and teams have been able to attack their zone and then – you know, then then you always wonder how much does offensive tempo really factor into some of these struggles, and and I think six games in, it's safe to say it does. I, I, you know, I was a little skeptical at first, thought that was a bit of an excuse, but I think it factors in because you saw the best example is 
all right, you go fast for some of these games, and they keep having these tackling issues. They're having these depth issues, and, and they look kind of tired out there. And then going against Utah State and a pretty good offense led by Jordan Love, they slowed down the offensive tempo quite a bit, and the defense was dominant. They held them like 20 rushing yards and, you know, like 170 yards total. And I think that they were tackling better. They were pass rushing better, and you saw a clear difference. So, And then, you know, look at the Florida game. That first half, they were playing a lot more zone, and they were – they were, it looked like they were kind of under the assumption they could, you know, Kyle Trask would make mistakes in a zone, and Kyle Trask played one heck of a game and kind of picked them apart that first half. And then, you know, in the second half, I think what happened was they switched back to lockup man, which they're really good at. And, you know, they, they pass rushed a little bit more, got a little more pressure going, done some more stunts, and, and they shut them down in that last 26 minutes. So I think there's something to the idea that, okay, when it gets tough, they buckle down. But I really think it's just they're trying a lot of different things, and, you know, they're good in man coverage, and when they send pressure, they've had a lot of success. But the scary thing is, I don't know if you can play man coverage against an Alabama, right? With those receivers in that offense, I don't know if you can get away with it. So I think you almost have to keep playing with the zone to figure out if you can do it in the biggest game. But that's a long-winded answer. But I think overall my take is it's not the great defense we thought LSU might be, but it's not a bad one either. It's just it's solid, you know? Passing offense, 395 and a half a game. Rushing offense, ninth in the SEC, which is not where we're accustomed to seeing LSU, but 165 and a half. It feels to me like the running game is is getting better and they are relying on that a little bit more. If they're rushing it for 150 yards a game down the stretch in the SEC, is that good enough considering the weapons that, that um, Burroughs got on the outside in the passing game? I'd say it's enough just because, yeah, they're so passing-focused. I mean, the, I think the quote that maybe uh, Joe Burrow used, or it might have been Ed Ogeron, the, I mean, like he's completing 80% of his passes. So it's like it's, insane. it's not even like they view a pass as like an untrustworthy play anymore. You know, you almost view that with like the security of a run play is how they're kind of viewing it right now. So, I mean, I think they run when teams give it to them, but this is a pass-first offense. They're going to pass to set up the run is how they put it, which is such a bizarre thing to hear about LSU, right? But – I mean, they, they throw the ball, and then when teams like Florida and Utah State, they took numbers out of the box and tried to focus on stopping that pass game and coverage and left five or six guys in the box, when you give that to LSU, they're going to run it. And you saw it in both these last two games when you only put those numbers in the box. They had a field day, ran for over 200 yards in both games when they did it. So I think it's, it's not even about enough. It's just more about, to me, can you run it when teams dare you to run it? Because if not, then you have problems. And and so far, the two times teams have dared them to run it, they've succeeded. And then when teams try to stop the run, they've aired it out on them. So I think right now, I mean, the thing the thing I was point to is, I've, I mean, you know, I've been skeptical of this offense. I'm not skeptical, but kind of a, hey, let's wait until we see it against a good defense. But Florida looks yeah. like it might be a top-five defense in the country. And for them to do it against that, I really do look at this and wonder, you know, what is the flaw? And I'm still trying to figure it out. Brody Miller on your radio. He's at Brody A. Miller on Twitter. He's the LSU beat reporter for The Athletic. You can also follow The Athletic CFB for tons of college football news. So I was talking with Ross Dellinger about this a lot, and maybe this is something that's being talked about a lot where you are in and around Baton Rouge, around the LSU program, but I don't feel like it's been talked about much nationally because so many people have said, Joe Brady, Joe Brady, Joe Brady. But this is just kind of an outside observation. To me... Ed Ogeron has to trust the people that are around him. And because of the long-term relationship, 
I feel like he's got like unquestioned trust in Steve Ensminger. And that's maybe the reason that he has allowed this offense to continue to function the way it is and has completely bought into that. Do you think that's a is that a reasonable observation? Do you buy into that idea? I think it is. Yeah, it is a really fascinating dynamic, and it's kind of the thing around Baton Rouge that everybody's kind of kind of put their finger on exactly. Of you know, what is the responsibility breakdown between Brady and Ensminger? Like, who's really doing what? And, and I, I don't. You know, the way I always put it is, I think Brady's kind of the the visionary, for lack of a better term. It's a little too much to say visionary, but you know, he's this like really smart X and O's guy who brought this offense in, and he's the guy who deserves a lot of the credit for taking LSU out of the Stone Age, but. Ensminger is still the boss, you know? I mean, Ensminger is still the guy running the show. I think the way uh, Ogeron put it was, you know, Ogeron's the general. I mean, Ensminger's the general. And so it's it's an interesting dynamic, and, and Ensminger still calls a lot of the plays. I mean, Brady, you talk to people around that program who are in the thick of it, and they're like, yeah, Brady's, you know, Brady's the star here, but Ensminger does a lot more than he gets credit for. And, and I think there is a lot of truth to that, because a lot of people were wanting to fire at Steve Ensminger last season, and I think Steve Ensminger made a lot of mistakes last season and handled some things incorrectly, but I think there's a lot of traits that Steve has that are really good. I think he knows how to call a game really well. I think, I think he knows, you know, there's, he's good with quarterbacks. He's got a lot of skills. So I think what made this marriage work is that, you know, he just didn't know. He, they, they tried to become a spread RPO offense, and I just don't think Steve really knew how to do that yet. And that's why I think this work yeah. is that, Joe brought Joe Brady brought that offense in and was able to teach them how to really do it. But Steve, but Joe Brady will also tell you he probably needed to learn a lot about being, you know, a real college offensive coordinator and how to how to really manage an offense and be like a real head coach kind of mentality. So I think they kind of balance off each other well. There's no doubt that Ed Ogeron trusts Steve Ensminger. That's his guy, and I think he would he would back him in any situation. Last thing, we've only got about a minute left. You, you mentioned earlier all the skill position players, but it's always seemed to be a little bit lacking at the quarterback position. Not to say that there haven't been good quarterbacks, but they haven't had it quite right. Is it a little surprising that now with Ed Ogeron as the head coach, it seems like they have gotten it completely right at QB? You're saying does they got the quarterback position right? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. The, 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 uh, yeah, it's... It's you know the him and Joe Burrow thing is really fascinating because I think those, a year a year and a half ago both those guys were at complete crossroads in their careers. I mean Ed Ogeron with a bad year could not be the co- he might not be the coach in 2019, and Joe Burrow after you know thinking he'd be the starting quarterback at Ohio State he was trying to finally get a spot to start somewhere. So it is really fascinating that they bet on each other, figured that out, and now it's this perfect marriage. And I think you're going to start seeing. The, the benefits of that down the stretch. You're going to start seeing the changes in recruiting with this new offense and Ed Ogeron and Joe Burrow. I mean, LSU having an actual Heisman candidate quarterback, that's going to pay massive dividends. So I think you're going to start seeing a change. I think you'll really – you might not see it in the 2020 class, but I think in the 2021 class you really will start to see a, a change in philosophy at quarterback and really an upgrade in the quality of guys they're bringing in. And that, that might be one of Ed Ogeron's biggest legacies here. Certainly uh, good insight. Brody, really appreciate your time this afternoon. Look forward always to uh, visiting with you, and we'll uh, we'll catch up with you down the line. Good stuff today. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, guys. Take care. That is uh, it's Brody Miller. If you want to hear more from, uh, from Brody as he kind of 
helps Brian Haydad break down this game between Mississippi State and LSU. You'll be able to do that later this week on the Thunder and Lightning podcast. You can uh, follow Brody on Twitter at Brody A. Miller. Covers LSU for The Athletic. A lot of interesting stuff there. There are a lot of moving parts with this LSU program, and at least for right now, they seem to all be working together in harmony. We're back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. Something interesting happening in this ALCS game between New York and Houston. The home plate umpire has taken two or three foul balls right into the face mask. And the first one was with the, uh, I guess, the Yankees on the mound. With Severino on the mound, and the Astro, a guy from the Astros fouled it into his face mask, and you had Gary Sanchez turn around and ask him if it was okay, kind of give him some. He said he was okay. And then it happened again, and they had a trainer out there, and he said he was okay. He thought he was going to grab a drink of water in between innings and has now removed himself from the game. So makes you think concussion-like concerns. And so they're taking one of the other umpires, running back to the umpire's locker room to get his gear on, and will go behind home plate. I'm not sure the umpire's name, but he's the crew chief. So kind of a tough situation there. You don't see that very often. No. No, but easier to navigate in the CS when you have more umpires. Yes, that's true. That's true. There is, um, Borky, you told me about this earlier today, Um, Bleacher Report. (laughs) They live stream a bunch of their guys that bet on games just watching games. But apparently the guys that um, barstool that but do it, same difference. I'm sorry, not Bleacher Report, barstool. And uh, after the last Yankees game they watched, they left their viewing area a mess. And so today they're not letting them watch the game. They have a young lady who works there who um, knows apparently nothing about baseball, and she is watching the stream, like telling all the guys that were wanting to watch the Yankees game and bet on it what's going on in the game. But she's having a fun time explaining this. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the, uh, like, the only thing she knows how to say when an inning's over is it's a commercial. So if it was like a pressure pack situation, they'll, like, literally yeah. be waiting for her to say something and she'll say, uh, well, it's a commercial. And then they'll go, they'll go crazy because that means they got out of the inning. It's just hysterical. Story from Yahoo Sports. The SEC takes football a little more seriously than the rest of the country. Let Connor Bruce Kroll serve as an example. The 19-year-old Alabama freshman has been arrested, accused of calling in a threat to LSU's Tiger Stadium during its Saturday night showdown against the Florida Gators, according to the Tuscaloosa News. The nature of the alleged threat hasn't been disclosed. The Tigers and Gators obviously had a really big game. Whatever the alleged intent by Kroll was, it was not to make the lives of LSU and Florida football players any easier, the story says. Kroll is being held in the Tuscaloosa County Jail without bond and is expected to face charges in Baton Rouge, according to the report. A spokesman for Alabama, Chris Bryant, acknowledged the arrest in a statement to the Tuscaloosa News without divulging any details. He says, quote, We are aware of the, rest of the arrest of a UA freshman over the weekend. Threats and pranks can have serious ramifications and necessitate an appropriate response. 
The university and UAPD are cooperating fully with the investigation, but we cannot provide any additional details on a pending matter. UA will follow its student conduct policies and procedures. The specific charge facing Kroll has not been reported. So an Alabama fan in Tuscaloosa calls a threat into Tiger Stadium in Baton Rouge on Saturday night during the LSU-Florida game. They, they keep saying threat. Is it, is it not a bomb threat? Or, or, or do we not know that? that? That has not been official. I mean, that's kind of what you think it is, right? I mean, I, what other kind of threat is there? Well, there's. Oh, well, I mean, you could threaten a bomb, or you could threaten a bio-nuclear attack, or you could threaten. Uh, I, I don't know. Those all sound like bomb threats to me, though. Well, like, a, a but, shooting potentially. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I've got a gun. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I mean, there there are, I guess, multiple threats that could be made, but my goodness, whatever this loser's going to get isn't enough, though. There's no way that person who thinks that's a good idea should be allowed to exist among the rest of us. I mean, how does that play out? You got a bunch of guys sitting around and somebody goes, hey, we ought to call in a threat. And somebody goes, ooh, I'll do it. Yeah, the I'll do it guy needs to be like sent to some kind of island that's inhabited by indigenous people that have never met an outside human before and let them take care of him. He doesn't deserve to exist among us. So you, you want some indie justice on this deal? Yeah, because, I mean, at one point or another, he's going to do something that actually harms somebody else. Rather it not be me. Yeah. I mean, what you would like to believe here is really bad, really foolish, really immature decision. Thankfully, nobody was hurt. And hopefully this guy and lots and lots and lots of other people learn from this. But I'm not sure that you can just take it like that at face value value in uh, the current climate in which we live. Mm. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio College Football Fix is coming your way next. Sports Talk Mississippi with you streaming online at supertalk.fm. Glad to have you along on this Tuesday afternoon. Richard Cross, Brian Scott Rippey, Brian Haydad, Michael Borky. Sports Talk brought to you every day by Mississippi Land Bank. Online, you can find them at mslandbank.com. Check out that website, and when you go to the website, click on the front page where it says, Win the Hunt of a Lifetime. An opportunity for you to win or help your youngster win a lifetime sportsman's license and also the hunt of a lifetime. Rules and guidelines are on the website. All you got to do is fill out your child's first and last name, your first and last name, your email address and phone number, and then you click Submit. Included in this package, one Mississippi lifetime sportsman's license for a youth hunter ranging between the ages of 5 and 16. So from a 5-year-old up to a 16-year-old eligible to win a lifetime sportsman's license, and also you get to choose from one of the following. Either a fully funded duck hunt at Beaver Dam Hunting Services located in Tunica, that's for the youth winner and one accompanied adult, 
a fully funded quail hunt at Prairie Wildlife in West Point for the youth winter and one accompanying adult, or the collection of promotional hunting apparel items and supplies. A really cool package. All you've got to do, again, is go to the website, mslandbank.com, fill out the information for your chance to win the hunt of a lifetime for a young person between the ages of 5 and 16. That's courtesy of Mississippi Land Bank. Speaking of winning, I'll give you a chance to win right now. We are excited to give you a chance to win concert tickets before you can buy them to Jason Aldean, March 7th, 2020, the Bank Corp South Arena in Tupelo. Here's how you win. All you got to do is pick up the phone and give Michael Borky a call. The phone number is 888-808-8637. If you are caller number 7, you can win a pair of tickets to see Jason Aldean in Tupelo, March 7th. That's if you're caller number 7. Again, the number 888 888- Eight zero eight eight six three seven. It's time right now for the College Football Fix. The College Football Fix is driven by Ford and your local Mississippi Ford dealers. Log on to buyfordnow.com. Find out why the best-selling trucks are built Ford Tough. You can check out the F-150, the best-selling truck in America, for 42 straight years. Or maybe, maybe you want to check out the Ford Ranger. Fantastic new truck. It was reintroduced by Ford last year. It's gotten rave reviews. You can test drive one at your local Mississippi Ford dealer today. All right, Tuesdays is the day. Tuesdays are the day. Are the days? Tuesday is the day. Yeah, easy if you're an English major. You to, get there eventually. Uh, take a yeah, eventually. Let's take a look at what's coming up in the SEC this weekend, and what the boys in the desert think. Auburn is an 18-point favorite at Arkansas on Saturday. Arkansas coming off a disappointing loss on the road against the Kentucky Wildcats. Auburn was off last week, so the Auburn Tigers should be relatively healthy. You remember Auburn is without Booby Whitlow for four to six weeks. They're starting running back. Freshman quarterback, 18 points. Is that too big a number in Fayetteville? It's like right on the line for me. It's just right yeah. there. It's like, I mean, if I if, if you said they won twenty eight to ten, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't know that all, the hell push I don't know that Arkansas could get ten points. So, but it's 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 right there. It's right. It's really close. It's it's enough that I'm having to think about it. It sounds about right to me. Doesn't it feel like Arkansas is going to have trouble scoring against that Auburn defense? Yes. yes. We have a winner, by the way. So uh, hate to say right. it, but you can stop calling. It's Ricky Price from Grenada has won the Jason Aldean tickets. All right, Ricky. Congratulations. Thanks for calling in. March 7th of next year, Jason Aldean in Tupelo. pair of tickets coming your way. We'll give away a pair of tickets each day this week on Sports Talk Mississippi. LSU, 19.5 in Starkville. Rippy, what's that number do for you? I don't know. State can't score, so probably about right. Hey, Dad. How much cash can we get together, the four of us, in the next couple of days? Like, if we had an emergency, we're like, we had to call our parents and, and all our friends, we need money. How much do you think we could round up? Because we should go put all of that on LSU. 
laying the 19 and a half? Oh, yeah. Are you are you going to make a trip to Philadelphia this week? Well, you know, we're making one next week, which is a shame. I'd love to make it this week because that would give me an excuse. Uh, I might. Mm. Missouri's a 21-point favorite at Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt just got beat by 24 by UNLV. I hate to use a transitive property, but I probably feel pretty confident that Missouri's going to cover. Georgia is at home again this week, coming off the disappointment of losing last week 20-17 to at home to the South Carolina Gamecocks. They are a 25-point favorite against Kentucky. That feels like a big number. It was a big number last week. Yeah, it was. I mean, you look at that at face value, man, like, oh, Georgia's going to have a big old case of the red rear. They're going to come out clicking on all cylinders. You would I think just don't so. feel like I've seen I just don't feel like I've seen Georgia click on all cylinders offensively since the first half of their game against Vanderbilt in the season opener. I thought they looked unbelievable in the first half of that game. Maybe consider the opponent and the fact that they didn't keep it going. That is a good Notre Texas Dame A&M's. team they beat, though. And it was only it 24 was. points, right. but it's a good Notre Dame team. I'm, I, I was just baffled about what happened last week, but Kentucky still might have to play a slot receiver or quarterback, and at some point Kentucky will play somebody that has the athletes that won't let them just run around the field in space like he did last week, and Georgia's probably that team. Texas A&M, six-and-a-half-point favorite over Ole Miss in Oxford. Oh, it said 6.05 on this. I was definitely going to take the Rebels and the points if that was the case. That You thought Ole Miss was getting 605? I, I just like, if I can find a casino that will give me that line, I will I will pay off my house this week if that's the case. Yes. Ole Miss would find a way to screw me. They'd somehow lose by 606. Oh, stop it. Touchdown about right for this game? Yeah, I mean, it'd probably be 10 or 11 if the game were in College Station, so it seems about right. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, it's going to be a very, close, very very close football game. Just all the way around? Yeah. I'm. I'm as we sit here today on a Tuesday, I'm not 100% sure that I won't take Ole Miss to win outright. All of Ole Miss's games have been close since Alabama pretty much. Yeah. And I just Vanderbilt, don't like a I don't like A&M. The Ole Miss just hasn't been able to find ways to win close games. And so until they do. Yeah. And A&M does not run the ball particularly well. They're like 100th in the country in uh, run offense and something like that. So the games that they have won, they've done it uh, on the arm of Kellen Mond. And that kind of plays into Ole Miss's biggest weakness. Mike McIntyre called it their Achilles heel is the secondary. So um, – Fascinated to see how they handle it. Maybe this week they don't sell out and stop the run because they may not have to considering A&M is just not very good at it. And I don't know, but that's that's a concerning number is they don't run the football well, but they're 24th in the country in passing offense. So, uh, Texas A&M 13th in the SEC, 132 yards per game on the ground through the air. Fourth, 288 yards per game. 
LSU leads the SEC 395.5, then Alabama at 366. Florida, A&M, and Missouri round out the uh, the top five. Alabama, a 35-point favorite at home against Tennessee. You just saw Tennessee, hey, Dad. Does that yeah. number scare you at all? No. I would take <laughs> Alabama to cover. Did you see Jeremy Pruitt this week, though? Actually had a little personality to him? What he said was smart. He should do what he said. He won't because he the fan base would kill him. But he said, he was like, you know that high school over in Arkansas that does onside kicks and never punts? He's like, maybe that's what we should do. Just never give them the ball. Go for would it, Would the Jeremy. fan base kill him, though? What would you lose by trying that until the game's out of hand? I mean, playing teams, playing Alabama straight up has not worked out well for most anyone not named Clemson. You underestimate the sanity Florida, of college football fans. Fair enough. Florida's a six-point favorite at South Carolina. Hmm. I mean, based like on what that. you've seen from Florida, say what, hey, Dad? I feel like they'll cover that. Tend to tend to agree with you. Sports Talk Mississippi. We'll look at some of the uh, national lines as well. A couple of semi-interesting games, maybe. We're back after this in the Renaissance Bank studio. Renaissance Bank, understanding you. So officially a concussion for home plate umpire Jeff Nelson. He has left the game, and uh, they brought a new guy in. Brought the left field umpire in. Sports Talk with you. Richard Cross, Michael Borky, Brian Haydad, and uh, Brian Scott Rippey. Congratulations to our friend in Jackson, who won the uh, Chase and Aldine tickets. Grenada. Is that right? Aldine? What did I say? Jackson. What was his name? His name is Ricky Price. Yeah. Ricky in Grenada, who won the Jason Aldine tickets. I wonder if he'll have the brass knuckles mic like... uh... Brand, Brandon Gilbert, Gilbert had last night. How awkward that was show that? show was electric. It was electric. What show? The, the Genesis, Genesis Halftime, halftime show? show, which regularly books Jay-Z-esque talent. Um, Snoop do it a couple of weeks ago? I don't know. So that but was the Kansas Brantley thing. Gilbert perform on the sideline of the Packers game. And while he was singing about whiskey and cows and stuff, he had... <laughs> He had brass knuckles up on his mic, but wasn't even using the brass knuckles grip on the mic. I guess he had outgrown his set of knuckles and needed some new ones. I don't really know. Very aggressive move. I didn't necessarily hate it, but it was like, whoa. They looked like big knuckles, though, like he needs to grow into them. Is that the song where he talks about the girl? Is that that song? Did you really say he was singing about whiskey and cows and stuff? Yeah, he was. The point being is I was not really paying attention to the lyrics. I was mesmerized by the fact that he's just wielding brass knuckles next to a microphone. Clemson is a 24-point favorite on the road against Louisville. Oklahoma, 33.5-point favorite at home against West Virginia. Wisconsin is a 31-point favorite at Illinois. Wisconsin's good. Ohio State has the highly coveted Friday night game in the Big Ten. Good for them. Ohio State 28.5 point favorite at Northwestern on Friday night. So basically, if Ohio State scores 29, they cover, right? Right. Oregon is a three point favorite at Washington. 
Louisiana Tech right? favored at home against. Sorry, go ahead. I was asking, is this right? Southern's not favored? That is correct. Louisiana Tech undefeated wow. in conference play. Two point favorite in uh, Rowdy Rustin on Saturday against Southern Miss. Rustin can Southern be Miss, a by tough the way, in the driver's play. seat. If you if you're not careful, you look up and you've got like third and ninety, don't you? <laughs> I was going to go the other way with that and be like, it's a tough place to play. Just ask Slack Room. Ooh, did he lose there? He did. Well, I took one in Oxford once. Yeah, by three touchdowns. That was the end. That was a Houston good nut, wasn't it? That was a that bad was old Miss the, team, but that was a good La Tech team too. They were pretty good. That was really just Houston Nuts purgatory. It was had already been declared over. Oh, that was the first game after they said he's fired, but he's going to finish the season. It wasn't forty nine to ten. <laughs> I don't listen to your stuff. Was that two thousand eleven? Yeah. Yeah, that would have had to have been twenty eleven. Hey, Dad, how badly did Mississippi State win the Egg Bowl in twenty eleven? Thirty one to three. Mm. Okay. I know a former MSU football player who's not happy about that score. He said it could have easily been seventy to three. That he he felt that Ole Miss they were out of the game after the first couple of plays. They just wanted to get off the field. Probably not wrong on either account. Yeah. Penn State is a nine point favorite at home against Michigan for the whiteout game. And good atmosphere. All right, so we talked some earlier today, some yesterday about Joe Moorhead and the future of Mississippi State. And then you get this story today from Bruce Feldman, writing at The Athletic. He has released a names-to-watch list for coaching search season. It is not a hot seat list, but a list of guys who could potentially jump from one job to another. Joe Moorhead appears on the list. So if you subscribe to The Athletic and you want to read the article in its entirety, you may do that. Again, written by Bruce Feldman. Number one on the list is Luke Fickle, head coach at Cincinnati. Played at Ohio State. He was the interim head coach there. They are 16-3 and at Cincinnati since 2017. Bruce Feldman says, I'm sure Illinois would be interested, but I doubt he'd leave for that job. One bigger job potentially to keep an eye on is Michigan State. Feldman writes, there's some uncertainty about how much longer Mark D'Antonio might be leading the Michigan State program. Joe Moorhead is at number two on this list. Here's what he says about Joe Moorhead. His coaching tree is flourishing, and Moorhead parlayed his prolific offenses at Penn State into an SEC job. Do you leave the SEC to go anywhere else in college football? Mississippi State is a tough job in the SEC West. Moorhead is 11-8 and in two seasons following a stint at Penn State. His time in State College came after he did exceptionally well at FCS member Fordham, going 38-13 and after taking over a beleaguered program. Could the Pittsburgh native be tempted to return closer to his northeastern roots in the Big Ten? at Rutgers or Illinois, or even at Boston College. 
That's what Bruce Feldman writes. Hey, Dad, do you have a reaction? If you're a person who believes Joe Moorhead should be fired, what that is your absolute best-case scenario, that he takes a job somewhere else, and there's no buyout, there's no stigma of he, you know, the state fired a guy after only two seasons, this would be the best-case scenario for you. Counterpoint, devil's advocate counterpoint. Let's say, just for fun, he takes the Boston College job. Okay. Would that be viewed negatively on Mississippi State, where this guy jumps ship from Mississippi State to go to Boston College or to go to Illinois. I mean, what is going on there to where he's willing to leave the SEC West to go to Boston College? You know what I mean? Would that have some kind of negative residual effect? I don't think it would be a very big one. There's definitely, there would definitely be a perception thing of, you know, it seems like a, at best a lateral move or, or however you want to look at it, but quote Dan Mullen there. Um, yeah, but it's simple day, like Bowling Green, like Google search would probably tell you that it wasn't working out there. Like it's not like he tore it up and then was like, oh, I'm going to dart for Boston College. It was more so, right. I'm getting off this This isn't like Mullen at the, after the end of the 2015 season where Mullen was tied to the Maryland job and you're like, what? Why on earth would that happen? This, this yeah, you could look at, especially if he's 11 and 8, so, you know, if he finishes, you know, he's 14 and 11, if he goes 6 and 6, yeah, you can you can see why you left. Is there something to the idea that smart people sometimes have the ability to just step back from the situation they're in and go, you know what, this isn't working, and there's an opportunity for a really clean break all the way around. You don't see that very often in the football world. But if you get the opportunity to press the reset button and still go make a lot of money and still be doing exactly what you want to do and get to a place where you're comfortable or familiar or however you want to describe it, and and I'm I'm not advocating for for this to happen but it doesn't feel like it would be the worst thing if it did happen right and right maybe maybe one more layer to that does bruce feldman put joe moorhead on this list at number 2 if he doesn't have some inclination that that's a possibility it's the second time he's done this in 2 weeks because, because think about the other names on the list, okay? Luke Fe, uh, Luke Fickle at Cincinnati, uh, uh, it's a, a group of five job. The other names on the list, Jason Candle at Toledo, group of five. He's in the MAC. Jeff Munkin at Army. Unique offense, will somebody take a shot on him? Would, would somebody go with the idea of bringing the triple option to an FBS program? And then the last name on the list is Mike Norvell. Five and one this year at Memphis. Really good offensive mind, etc. So with these five names on this list, and we'll get to the others. Willie Fritz at Tulane, Nick Rolovich at Hawaii, Tony Elliott, co-offensive coordinator at Clemson, Jeff Halfley. Co-defensive coordinator at Ohio State, Alex Grinch, Oklahoma defensive coordinator. 
And then there are other names. But one of these names is not like the other. We have a sitting head coach in the SEC who's at number two on this list from Bruce Feldman. I just wonder if there's more to this other than just randomly throwing names onto a list like this. Sports Talk Mississippi in the Renaissance Bank Studio. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.